What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are, and it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Politics by Faith. My name is Mike Slater. Thank you for being here. The purpose of this podcast is to take a story of the day in the news that's causing anxiety, to break it down, describe it, lament it, and then give some historical perspective and biblical truth that can help that anxiety go away because there's nothing new under the sun. Then we always wrap up with something that is in your control and a final inspiring thought so that you can go to sleep (laughs) because this anxiety is not healthy for me or anyone. The story of the day today, I wanted to do like a Kevin McCarthy Republican Party follow-up, but eh, there'll be time for that soon. I can't get this story out of my head, and I don't think it got enough attention, so we're going to give it a little more attention. Did you hear about the teacher who was shot by her student in Virginia? The student was six years old. Six, a six-year-old boy shot his teacher. Now, we will never really know what happened because the shooter is six. So my first thought was that this was an accident. Maybe the kid brought a gun to school and reached into his backpack and pulled the trigger by accident. Like there was a New York Giants player who brought a gun to a nightclub and put it in his sweat sweatpants like the, the the strap of his sweatpants or whatever, and like reached and like and like that was an accident, like an accidental misfire. So I thought it was something like that with the six year old, and and it just happened to have been pointed at the teacher in that show. But nope, that's not what happened. Here's what we know: a 25 year old teacher was teaching class. The six year old pulled out the handgun on his desk, pointed it at her, and fired. This was not an accident. This was an intentional shooting. He brought the gun from home. It appears to be his mother's gun. Now, what we don't know is what the boy thought he was doing. So there's a range, right? There's there's a range of, well, I guess the one extreme is total accident, right? But then there's, oh, I I didn't know. You know, I see it on video games. I see it on music videos. It's fun to shoot things, right? And I didn't know the gravity of, what I was doing, whatever. Or it's all the way, I'm going to kill my teacher. I'm going to bring a gun to school. I'm going to shoot my teacher. I'm going to kill her. Could have been that. And anywhere in between, I suppose, right? Here's the New York Times. Though badly wounded, she sent the students in her class, as many as 20 children, scrambling into the hallway, while another employee, check this line out, rushed into the room and restrained the six-year-old. 
restrained. This how? Why would a six-year-old need to be restrained? Police say the six-year-old hit the teacher or employee who was restraining him, but did not fire another shot. Jeez. Which and again, that description leads me to believe that it's a little more of the malicious intent. Have you ever fired a gun before? It's a lot. It's loud. I don't think I've ever fired a gun without ear protection, and it's still pretty loud. It gets your adrenaline pumping the whole thing. How could a six-year-old not be shocked at what they just did, even if they meant to, or if they thought it was more of a... I don't think this kid thought it was a toy, but even if they thought it would maybe make the sound that a toy gun makes, but they're like, oh, wow. Like If a gun was fired in your hand and you're six, I would imagine you'd be freaked out. To the point where you wouldn't then need to be restrained. Unbelievable. So now this school, the the New York Times is talking about the need for metal detectors in elementary schools. Elementary schools. (sighs) Do you remember back in the day when the biggest concern in school was chewing gum? Or cutting in line? Or passing notes behind the teacher's back? Now we need metal detectors in elementary schools? This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe, download now, the truth. Police chief said the shooting was not accidental. It was intentional. So the teacher has survived. She was shot in the chest. The mother of the boy may be charged with a crime, but Virginia, I guess, does not have a law about how guns need to be stored in the home like other states do. So there's some, I'm sure they'll come up with something, child neglect or something like that. That's the mom. The boy will not be charged with a crime because he's six. NBC says they'd have to prove that a six-year-old was capable of forming the intent for attempted murder. And the boy is also unlikely to be charged because he's not competent to stand trial because he can't assist his attorney and doesn't understand what's going on. Wow. Man, we live in a culture of death. I want to share three other stories. Now, we could do a podcast on each of these, but I'm just going to put them all here because they all have the same core theme. First story, 60 Minutes did a piece 
last week with Paul Yerlich. He's the author of this book, Population Bomb. It came out in 1965. His thesis is there's too many people, too many people on the planet. The earth doesn't have enough resources and we're all going to die. He was wrong then. He's wrong now. He's been on Johnny Carson's, he was on Johnny Carson's show, I think 18 times. Very popular. He was like the Bill Nye, the science guy of, of the 60s and early 70s. Constantly wrong. He's been wrong about everything. Every single thing in his book is wrong. He's wrong all the time. But 60 Minutes still had him on. And he couldn't have been more wrong with every doomsday prediction he's ever made. I just got a couple of them here. He said, uh, this is in 1970, America will be subject to water rationing by 1974 and food rationing by 1980. By the year 2000, the United States will be, excuse me, the United Kingdom will simply be a small group of impoverished islands. Uh, Here, this is a good one. We will soon be asking, is it perfectly okay to eat the bodies of your dead because we're all so hungry? That's Paul. You're like, in 2014, this guy's a nut, and they still gave him a platform. He's over at Stanford. The leaders of the environmentalist movement believe that humans are a parasite on the planet. They believe that humans are a cancer on the planet. These are their words. And it's very simple to understand why. They worship the created over the creator. It's Romans one twenty five. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's what the leaders of the environmentalist movements are all about. And, and this is why I bring it up here, they're putting the lives of plants and animals over the lives of humans. This is the intro to the 60-minute story. Today, wild plants and animals are running out of places to live. So the great that's the intro. So the greatest, the top priority are wild plants and animals. So you're thinking, well, hold on, and there's, we could do, I mean, we talked a ton about this on my political radio shows. That's not what we're going to do here. But my point about bringing this up now is why did 60 Minutes run this story? Why did they run this story about overpopulation? Why are they so concerned about wild plants and animals? Why would they have this discredited Paul Yerlich guy on? What is this about? In the omnibus bill passed at the end of the year, a couple of weeks ago, there was $527 million, over half a billion dollars, for family planning services, that's abortion, in areas where population growth, quote, threatens biodiversity. Family planning services in areas where population growth of humans threatens biodiversity, plants and animals. So that's abortion, killing humans, where people are invading the land where animals are living. Could the anti-humanness of this be any more clear? So the media had to spread the propaganda that there's too many people in order to justify the murdering of human babies to save animals, plants, and the planet. The leaders of the environmentalist movement have a very anti-human worldview. And it's not a rare, it's not, it's not just a few people. A lot of young people today say they don't want to have kids because of environmental concerns. This is a 2018 poll. The New York Times found that among young adults in the United States who said they had or expected to have fewer children than the number they considered ideal, 33% listed climate change, 27% named population growth as a concern. So the Bible says, go forth and multiply. (laughs) Paul Yerlich is scaring young people in particular into not having children. That is a culture of death. Don't have kids, or if you're about to have them, if they may encroach upon wildlife, we need more family planning service. That is a culture of death. Second story from this week, also about abortion, the rise of the abortion pill. Half of all abortions are not done in a Planned Parenthood clinic with a doctor. 
Half of the abortions in this country are a pill sent in the mail. And the FDA just announced that the big pharmacies, CVS and Walgreens, can now sell mifepristone. What is mifepristone? Here is a Planned Parenthood video describing it. Mifepristone works by blocking the hormone progesterone, which stops your pregnancy from developing. I like how the baby is described as your pregnancy. <laughs> it blocks a hormone which enables your baby to develop. Therefore, your baby does not develop. So this it can now be sold at CVS and Walgreens. So if abortion is legal in your state, you can now get it at, at the pharmacy. If it's illegal, you could still get it in the mail. Now, this raises a very important moral question for a pharmacist. A pharmacist who did not sign up for participating in abortions when they took on the role of being a pharmacist. Prescribing the abortion pill is fundamentally different than any other type of medication. A friend of mine worked at a college health clinic and California passed a law allowing the abortion pill to be dispensed at college health clinics and she quit her job. She could not be a part of that, not what she signed up for. And the LA Times ran an article, abortion pills and pharmacies are the future, but the FDA should do more to expand access. The culture of death is insatiable. Third story, and then we'll get back to the the shooting of the six-year-old, although this is all the same. It's all part of this culture of death. Canada is, uh, they have this physician-assisted suicide program. They call it MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying. I saw an advertisement for it, and it's, it's written in like a cartoony font. Really super creepy. So at first, this started with only the most terminally ill, the people who had only a few days to live. They were in extreme pain, and it needed to be signed off by two doctors. Just a few years later, poverty is now a good enough excuse to get a doctor to assist in you killing yourself. No terminal illness required at all. And now in Canada, they're debating about making this available for minors, children. These things that used to be crimes are now rights. The other day, I've heard this before, but it really just smacked me. For some reason, I don't know why it hit me. Do you know how many people died in World War II? How many people died in World War II? Let me give a little context. Do you know how many people have died from COVID around the world? Now, this is an exaggerated number, surely, because we don't know how many people died from COVID versus with COVID. But the official number worldwide is 6.71 million. I bet it's way less than that. But we'll go. We'll round up. $7 million. $7 million people died from COVID. Okay. Do you know how many people died in World War II? 75 million. Seven, so over 10 times as many people died in World War II as from COVID. 75 million what brutal inhumanity could lead to that magnitude of destruction? What ideology could lead to that? Well, I'll tell you, communism, socialism, Nazism, fascism. These are all cultures of death. These are all ideologies where individual human life does not matter. These are all atheist worldviews as well. The horrific... French Revolution, Maximilien Robespierre, architect of the Reign of Terror, 1793, this effort to make a godless utopian society. He famously said, one can't expect to make an omelet without breaking eggs. The eggs here are human lives, to be clear. This is why I was so surprised when I saw something the other day that was very encouraging. So we see this culture of death around us all the time. But then Damar Hamlin, the Bills' safety who collapsed on the field, technically died. He had to be brought back to life twice. 
the reaction to that was very encouraging. People rightfully responded as if that was a very big deal. It was a big deal. People watched a man die, fortunately brought back to life. But people had a the proper reaction to that. And I'm surprised actually that people had the proper reaction. By the way, people dying on the football field, it's happened many times before. Uh, back, football almost wasn't a thing. Back in 1904, the Chicago Tribune reported that there were 18 people who died on the football field in one year and 159 serious injuries. In one year, 1904, 18 people died, mostly high school players. One newspaper said the once athletic sport has degenerated into a contest that for brutality is little better than the gladiatorial combats in the arena in ancient Rome. And the man who came to the defense of football, you know who it was? Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was into this like this strenuous life concept, which we actually need to get back to. He he was the one who already brought back the Harvard-Yale football game. The Harvard-Yale game of 1894, it was known as the bloodbath at Hamden Park. That's how brutal it was. And, and some people call it the Springfield Massacre. They ended the game. After the game, they're like, we're not doing this anymore. It's over. No more football. They stopped it for two years until Roosevelt led the effort to bring it back. And then he formed a group of representatives from different colleges to come together and figure out how we can make football a little bit safer. And that group later became the NC2A. But they were the one who came up with, with new rules for football. One of them was the forward pass. It opened up the game, made it much safer. This was 1906. So my point is, football has always been dangerous. It's always been dangerous. And it was nice to see people care about human life on the football field. I would, I think it's sad to say, but I would have thought in our culture of death that this would have been seen as no big deal. Oh, he died doing what he loved. Move on, finish the game. And next week we'll put his number on everyone's jersey and whatever. It's an expendable life lost for the great cause of football. But we didn't do that. Everyone prayed for Damar. It wasn't just thoughts and prayers either. It was pray for Damar. Our TV show, we we did a whole special on this. It's called uh, Renewing the Faith and uh, Renewing America's Faith in God. And we did a whole segment with uh, Jack Brewer, former NFL football player. He's great. Very impressive. Actually, well, I think we'll post it here on the podcast. So just stay tuned for that. But uh, he was awesome. We talked all about this phenomenon of pray for Damar. A lot of wonderful things came out of that. So I'm very grateful that that was people's reaction to that. So it's not all lost yet. But what's really going on here? We have this culture of death, no question. But what's really happening? The Bible says that human beings are made in his image, God's image. We thought we could remove God and still keep the good principles that come from the Bible. Remove God, but still keep the Judeo-Christian principles. You can't. When you remove God, you lose all of it. And one of the things that we've lost is this idea that man is created in God's image. When you lose that understanding that everyone is created in God's image, then you will have a culture of death instead. But what does that mean in God's image? We'll talk about that in just a minute. But first, let's lament. Let's take a minute to lament here. This is one of the most important parts of the podcast. Thank you for making it this far. We got to do it. Six-year-old shooting people. Before the show, I googled Chicago shootings this weekend. There were only 11. Only 11 people shot. One killed. Pretty good. The guy who was killed, he was 29. He was inside his house. Someone shot him in the head. Point blank range. There was a 14-year-old who was shot, a 15-year-old, another 15-year-old. These are kids. 
And now we have a six-year-old intentionally shooting his teacher. What in the world? Oh, there's a ton going on here. A bunch of things going through my head right now. Of course, no dads. That's a big one. That's a spiritual battle too. We talked about that with Jack Brewer as well. That's a spiritual issue. Let me just pick on video games for a second. I read the other day that this is the, the video game trades, trade group, says 76% of kids under 18 play video games. But I read another survey that says it's 91%. I'm guessing it's closer to that, if not higher. Five to eight-year-olds, five to eight, play 40 minutes of video games a day. On average, 40 minutes a day. Imagine if they read a book for 40 minutes a day. Eight to 12-year-olds spend 90 minutes a day. And 13 to 18-year-olds spend almost two hours a day, on average, playing video games. Imagine if you spent that time doing anything productive. Now, I uh, used to be addicted to video games. But when I played video games, it was SimCity, Mario Kart. <laughs> or maybe if you're older, you played Pac-Man. There's a massive difference between Mario jumping on a bunch of brown Goombas compared to Call of Duty and all the video games of today. Red Dead Redemption and Grand Theft Auto, Halo, Resident Evil. These are fundamentally different inputs into your children's souls that... They spend on average two hours a day playing. It's desensitizing. Even if you don't think video games cause someone to go out and murder people, it makes all of us more callous to it. That's the real problem with it. And just everything's dark. Everything in our culture is so dark. Video games are dark. Very different than Mario Kart. I mean, there's different planets. But... I'm not going to go on. It's very very unfashionable for the old fogies to be complaining about violent video games. But come on. It's obvious. All right, let's get to the history. Because I don't want to live in a world where we desensitize human life. But those are your options. You either understand the image of God or culture of death. There's no middle road. It's image of God, culture of death. Pick one and you're either you're heading in one or two directions towards the extremes. Now, things used to be a lot worse. There's no question. Gladiators used to kill each other, fight to the death for entertainment. Amazing. And it wasn't just entertainment. There was, there was more to it. So a lot of historians believe that these gladiator fights started as a, a blood ritual for funerals of rich people. So when a rich person died, an aristocrat died, the families would hold these fights at the gravesite between slaves or prisoners because a lot of Romans believed that human blood purified the deceased person's soul. So it was a sort of a human sacrifice that took place at the gravesite. That's where they started and then it grew from there. And then when Julius Caesar's dad and, and daughter died, he'd hold these massive gladiator matches with hundreds of people fighting to the death, to the roar of the crowd. And emperors would hold these gladiator matches to gain favor with the masses. People loved them. That's who we are. That's humans. That's human beings. This is why I say we haven't hit rock bottom yet. Which you can either say, thank goodness, or you can say, great, we got a long way to go still. It's a long way before we have gladiator matches again where people are actually dying and we cheer it. Like, think about that. The DeMar Hamlin, playing football, died on the field, and uh, everyone was distraught. Awesome. Because it wasn't that long ago 
human beings just like us who would have gladiator matches where they knew someone was going to die. And then when someone did, they'd cheer. They'd celebrate. They thought it was great. It was entertainment. What a fun thing to do this afternoon. Can't wait for the one next weekend. Sometimes they'd fight animals. There was one 100-day ceremony, 9,000 animals, deer, ostriches, lions, bears, elephants, 9,000 were killed. These animals also uh, would, were the means of execution to kill Christians too. So we should not do this to people. This is, this is bad because people are made in God's image. People are made in God's image. What does that mean? I know you've heard it before. Everyone's heard that line before, but what does it mean? All right, Genesis 1. God's making everything. His crowning achievement. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. There it is, image of God, our image. What a fascinating topic to explore for the next few minutes and for the rest of our lives. It wasn't just that one time, James 3, 9. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So how we treat people is an indication of how we value God because they were made, everyone is made in the likeness of God. But again, what is it? What is it? What's fascinating is over time, of course, fallen man, we've made God in our image, right? So we we all have a visual of what God looks like. And, and it's the dad from the little mermaid trident King trident, right? <laughs> that, that's got, or, you know, Michelangelo's Sistine chapel. That's God, an old white guy, long white beard. That's making God in our image. See how we do that. But that's backwards. We are made in his image, but how are we made in his lots of ways? First, his authority. So that sentence from Genesis one twenty six, let us make man in our image after our likeness goes on. And let them, us, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we are made in his image and we have authority over the physical realm. That's one way that we have, that we are made in his image. How else are we made in his image? We have value. Everything is created by God and has value, but human beings made in his image have the most value. Every human life is sacred. This is why the highest crime you can commit, the worst crime is murder, the taking of another human being's life because they have the ultimate value. We'll talk about that again in a minute. Personhood, right? Like God, we are self-aware. We have thoughts and we have thoughts about our thoughts. We understand location and time and space. Animals don't. We remember the past. We anticipate the future. We have desires and emotions. Animals don't have these things. We have a concept of morality, truth, justice, right and wrong. Animals don't have these things. We are different than the animals. We are made in his image. Humans are also creative. God's creative. God is a God of beauty and creativity. And we partake in this creation ourselves in our lives. This is why I hate modern architecture so much. It's ugly. Christians should hate ugliness. And then love, of course. God is love. And we were built for relationship with others, just like the Trinity. Let me quote Subi Sretsky. Being made in the image of God, 
is not some abstract theological concept. It provides the basis for how we understand and approach every area of life, our view of human nature, how we treat people and the environment, the value we place on human life and human culture are all grounded in our understanding of the image of God. R.C. Sproul, he said, we are called to reflect the character of God's righteous rule over the universe. Reflect the character of God's righteous rule over the universe. He never ravages or exploits what he rules, but rather reigns in justice and kindness. It's R.C. Sproul. That's how we're to act as well. So image of God, it's in authority, value, personhood, creativity, and love. Things, again, that separate us from the animals. Final point, just to make this clear, later Genesis 9, 5, God to Noah reminds us that we're made in his image. Whoever sheds human blood, so if you murder someone, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. That's how much value God places on his creation. That if you take it, if you murder it, if you take away this this life, if you murder this person, then you will be put to death. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God has God made mankind. That's how important this is. Okay, I've alluded to this a few times. Let's talk about how the Old Testament deals with murder because it's fascinating. So Numbers 35 uh, talks about murder. And it says, the murderer shall be put to death. Exodus 21, 14. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. You got to go kill him. If someone murders another person, you go kill that person. Even if an animal kills a human. Exodus 21, 28. If a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or woman, the bull is to be stoned and its owner also is to be put to death. So even if an animal takes a human life, the animal has to be killed. Now, okay, what if you unintentionally murder someone? That's willful. What if you unintentionally murder someone? Well, the Bible says there are to be three, the Old Testament, this is in uh, Deuteronomy, there's to be three cities of refuge made. And if you unintentionally murder someone, you have to go there and that person's family can't come and avenge uh, their loved one by killing you. You're, you're safe in one of these three refuge cities. Isn't that amazing? So I love this. I love when the Bible is like super specific like this. So this is Deuteronomy 19.5. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, and they give an example. God gives an example. As when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the ax to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. I feel like a very specific example. He may flee to one of these cities and live lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursues the manslayer and overtakes him because the way is long and strike him fatally though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. And you may be like, well, hold on. This is what I thought. I thought, geez, that's, it was an accident. I mean, I'm sure the guy feels bad about it. And now he's got to go and live in a different city for the rest of his life because the ax handle broke. Yes, that's how seriously God takes human life. Even if you unintentionally kill someone, even if you're reckless enough where you didn't check your ax handle to make sure it was properly secured, even if you unintentionally kill someone, your life cannot go on uninterrupted. 
Now there's a third version. What if you find a murdered person? Are you with me? So you got willful murder, unintentional murder. Now what if you find a murdered person and you don't know who killed him? Deuteronomy 21 deals with this. It says you go find the nearest town, you take a cow that's never been worked and you break its neck. <laughs> what? That's, that's awful. Now the cow's throat is not cut. There's no blood involved here. This is not a, a sin sacrifice. That's not what this is. It's different. I like this analysis from Lior Gottlieb. He says, I believe that horror was the purpose of this unsavory ceremony. Its whole point was to horrify with a public act that demonstrated that the murder of a human being is a terrible affront that threatens to defile the entire land and cannot be left as is, even if the murderer's identity is unknown. So the point of this ceremony was like, it was a lot to declare to all the people how precious human life is. And it's sad today to live in a society where murder people are mentioned in the news and we just move on to the next story never to be thought about again, or they're just numbers. You know, 10 people dead in Chicago this weekend or whatever, and that's it. May we cling to the last bit of humanity that we have left. All right, let's talk about what's in my control. What's in your control as we live in this culture of death? Well, first of all, don't kill anyone. Now, listen, I know that's a low bar, but I think we should Start with that. As my pastor said last week, if you were setting someone up for a blind date and uh, they said, well, tell me what she's like. What is she, what is she like? And you use the Ten Commandments as a guide. Well, she's great. She hasn't murdered anyone. She doesn't steal things. She doesn't make graven images. Right? You can't like, like those are pretty basic things. I would like, like kind of like, like let's kick it up a notch here. So I would say don't murder anyone. Also don't participate in anything that promotes death. Let's have a conviction about that. Right. Think about the things you consume and support. Is it making you more numb? That's such a good question. Is it making you more calloused to death or is it making you more sensitive to the miracle and preciousness of life? Let me say it again. That's good. Does does what you consume, does the inputs you have in your life, does it make you more uh, calloused to death or more sensitive to the preciousness of life? Mm, let's curate our inputs to lead us in the right direction because I don't want to get numb. I don't want to live in a society where if a football player dies on the field, we don't care. We just roll them over, put them on the stretcher, and play on. I don't want to live in that world and it's weird because we're so callous with some things like abortion but then we're still rightfully sensitive on other things like like the football player it's very interesting which way will we go which way will we go next and we need to start seeing people as fellow image bearers of god c.s lewis wrote in the weight of glory he said next to the blessed sacrament itself your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. We don't think about we don't think about people as holy objects. But that's it. Let me quote this. It's a longer quote and you may have to listen to it or read it a few times before it fully hits you. But this is CS Lewis. He says the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you were to see it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror 
and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. So it's one of two directions, right? The person, the most uninteresting person you could talk to, one day will be one of those two things. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all plays, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Does the, does the uh, image of God, does this, is this under the severity, the importance of this? Every interaction has eternal consequences. That really changes everything. You've never talked to a mere mortal. How will that change your day? Final thought to meditate on, think about tonight. We can get some sleep. I just came across this scripture. It never struck me before. James 127. I love when the Bible does this. It's just when it's perfect. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's ESV. I like the NIV too. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Why look after widows and orphans? Because they're people too. And how do you keep that sensitivity to all human life by making sure you're not polluted by the world. That's our episode. SlaterRadio at gmail.com. If you'd like to contact me, SlaterRadio at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, for spreading the word. Oh, every email I get is someone saying, oh, I'm telling friends, family, church, everything's great. So thank you for taking the time to listen. Hopefully it helps them. Now we can get some sleep. Politics by Faith, Mike Slater.